to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com do you want more pleasure in your life this episode is sponsored by our friends at back to the body are you curious about arousal struggling with your sexual self-image or genital self-esteem are you looking for a sisterhood where you can talk about all this if you are ready to prioritize your sexual wellness check out back to the body our sponsor back to the body is a sexual wellness retreat for women back to the body hosts immersive week-long retreats that transport women to nurturing non-judgmental environments the new back to the body sexual wellness quiz for women is a chance to learn what your unique obstacles are to sexual wellness like what do you want, what's holding you back, and how you can overcome those barriers. You will leave knowing the next best steps and what services are out there to support you. Learn what your unique obstacles are to sexual wellness today by taking Back to the Body's sexual wellness quiz for women. Visit backtothebody.org to take the quiz. Unlock your radical path to holistic wellness. That's Back to the Body, B-A-C-K-T-O. T-H-E-B-O-D-Y, backtothebody.org, and you can take the free sexual wellness quiz for women now. The link is in the episode's description, plus there's a special discount code there for their retreats. Now to the episode. Sluts and Scholars is a podcast produced by Sluts and Scholars Media, LLC. It is a shame-free educational podcast made for your entertainment and informational desires only. The podcast, any opinions we share, and any resources, including social media and emails from us, are not therapy, medical care, or professional advice, and do not create a patient-client relationship. None of the information, opinions, suggestions, resources, or exercises mentioned in this podcast should be used without clearance from your healthcare provider. All opinions, information, and ideas expressed by the guests are solely their own. If you need emergency mental health or medical help, please call 911 or 988 or go to your nearest emergency center. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta Heidegger, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I'm excited to welcome Ianessa Humbert, PhD. She is an accomplished scientist, professor, and highly sought after speaker with expertise in swallowing and swallowing disorders. With hundreds of speaking engagements around the world, the most common feedback from attendees continues to be that this is the first time a course has really forced me to think about what I'm doing. Dr. Humbert's teaching philosophy requires attendees to question everything they think they know before learning can begin. Welcome, Ianessa. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be on this podcast. I'm very excited. Really happy to have you. So when I first heard the word swallowologist, actually, when uh, one of your business partners, Reva Corinne Thomas, was on the podcast, she was talking about you and she said swallowologist. And I just couldn't stop saying that word because first I was like, yeah. I didn't even know that was a thing. And then I just I was yeah. like, swallowologist, swallow. I like love this word. And so then I yeah. started, you know, checking out what that was and what you do. Um, for folks who don't know, what is a swallowologist and what are we talking about when we refer to like a swallowing specialization? Yeah, sure. Good question. So I have three degrees in the area of speech pathology, bachelor's, master's, and PhD. In my PhD that I yes, did boss. in collaboration with yeah, <laughs> that I did in collaboration with the NIH, I specialized in swallowing physiology. So Speech pathologists deal with communication and feeding, and I decided to go into the feeding side. I was then on faculty at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, University of Florida, University of Iowa, 
where I had lots of large grants to study people with swallowing disorders, as well as clinical decision-making among speech pathologists who treat them. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, I retired and uh, decided to build an online company that really just focuses on training people with swallowing clinicians to deal better with swallowing so they understand more. And it's like swallowing Netflix, but I always tell people it's not what you think. They're like, wait, swallowing Netflix? <laughs> because it's, Sounds you know, hot. all clinical stuff. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like we're not making enough money if it was the real one, right? Um, and then uh, basically I decided recently that when you're not on, under the constraints of academia and institutions, uh, you can yes. take your skill wherever you want to go, right? Which means that I thought there are so many other reasons why people need to know how to swallow. So I decided to really investigate what the world of sex has to say about it. And so I've been sort of incorporating my knowledge into that area. So when you hear a swallowologist, it's typically a speech pathologist who specializes in people with swallowing disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, I am probably the only one on the planet who incorporates it into sex and sexology. And uh, there are many reasons why that's the case. We can get more into that. Uh, yes. But that is the general summary. So before you kind of had this intersection of sex, what are the kinds of things that somebody comes to a swallowologist for? Like, what are these disorders that you're talking about? Yeah, so similar to walking, swallowing mm-hmm. is one of these behaviors that can be impacted by many different conditions and diseases. So it can yeah. be a neurological one like um, ALS, Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. stroke, um, head and neck cancer is another example of one. Um, you can have trauma to your neck. Yeah. Uh, being a car accident. You could also have frailty and other issues. And importantly, you might have a surgery or a procedure that leads to a swelling problem and many, many medications lead to swelling problems. When you listen to these commercials, they're like, if you have trouble breathing or swallowing, if you have rather, and you're like, wait a minute. Oh, and they say it so fast, nobody even thinks about I that. Know, I know. And then there are people who just generally have trouble swallowing pills. Like they have a phobia mm-hmm. for pills. Otherwise they're fine. So it can be such a huge range of people. Do you and of course, see prematurity. That, Some babies are just yeah. born early and they can't swallow too right away. Are there some like low level swallowing things that like a lot of people have, but we don't know that we have about like doing it, quote unquote, incorrectly or in like a physiological, non-helpful way? Yeah. So uh, there are some people who do silly things like raise their hand when there's something goes the wrong way. I don't know who decided that was a thing. It doesn't do jack crap. I think it's like to let people know that you're like uh, maybe about to choke. So you're like, I'm here. And that's an example of a low level thing, because what your body is doing is trying to save you and you're distracting your body from its job by telling other people, hey, look at me. So, for instance, if you're tripping and falling, do you draw attention to yourself? Okay, I'm falling. Maybe if you're falling off (laughs) of a cliff. But if you're trying. If you just trip over the curve, in fact, you want nobody to know about it, right? Yeah, yeah. What I'm saying is this. If you truly have an obstruction, like I might die, of course, you grab attention. But most of the time, something goes down the wrong pipe and your body's coughing. People often suppress the cough, which is your body's natural response to protect it, and raise their hand. And like, that's a learned behavior that we need to stop. Interesting. Okay, so yeah, you you do have this company, like I was saying with with past guest um, Reba Kern Thomas, called Gulp, um, where audiences get to learn about as you're talking about the physiology of sexual pleasure and and kind of normalize these conversations. But when I read your bio, I don't automatically think sexuality professional, right? And I wish all professionals in the medical and healthcare field had sexuality training. So uh-huh. how did you decide to start intersecting these things? And and tell me about this intersection. Sure. So as I said before, when I decided to leave academia, yeah. uh, I 
became really good friends with Reba and she's a sexologist. So upon talking about our different areas, I learned from her that in her fellatio workshop in DC, mm-hmm. um, one of the top questions people have is how do I suppress my gag reflex? And mm. of course I'm like, ooh, 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 I know everything about the gag reflex. And she's like, ooh, 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 I know nothing about the gag reflex. <laughs> Don't worry folks, so, we're gonna get there. <laughs> exactly. So um, a lot of times the things she was telling me that people were doing to suppress their gag reflex, I was like, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> you must stop these things. Because uh, the numbing. similar to a cough, well, yeah, uh, similar to a cough or a sneeze, your body's protective mechanisms are already hardwired. And so there are many reasons why your body needs to have that reflex in place. And mm-hmm. so there are some things that people might do that are problematic. So that's how I ended up in that space. And of course, people talk more about pleasure in the oral cavity. And I know a lot about the central nervous system and how our bodies respond to things. So I ended up becoming a consultant with expert consultants. And so I, I would consider myself an emerging um, sexual health expert. I don't, I am not one, but just by being a part of the crew, if you will, you guys are letting me learn through osmosis. And I'm bringing along uh, like 20 years of understanding of how the body works and sort yeah. of trying to incorporate and melt things so people can understand it from different angles. Yeah. And I mean, for everything else too, not just the swallowing stuff, like physiology to me is key. So whenever I have a client who comes in presenting, so I'm a therapist. And when I have a client that comes in presenting a sexuality concern, my first thought is what's going on in the body, right? Like I want to make sure to rule in or rule out some kind of physical cause. And usually with sexual things, we see a biopsychosocial component. So usually it's not just one thing. Now and then it will be like, okay, this is just physical. Now the physical is gone. But usually even if there's physical, then we start having an emotional psychological reaction to that. And then that can maintain it. And then that affects you spiritually or who you feel like you are. And and it just kind of spirals. So to me, the physiology is the primary paramount thing to first rule in or rule out for anyone coming to my practice. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that is the case, even in a clinical world where sometimes people say something sucks in my throat, we'll call it globus, like a globus sensation, and we'll actually do the x-ray and there's nothing there. And our job is to validate their perception. Your perception is not wrong. Your body is feeling that thing. Our medical tools are not specific or sensitive enough to pick it up. Let's figure out how to help you to not be so debilitated by this perception that something's stuck in your throat and not, we don't want to make them feel like we think they don't know what they're talking about. It is their body. And so it's always that fine interaction between what we think the body's doing, what they think the body's doing and how to come to an agreement that helps them. Yeah. And so what is the evolutionary necessity in our nervous system for the gag reflex? Right. Good question. So when you're bored, so first things first is that you've been swallowing since you were your 10th week of gestation in your mom's stomach. You've been swallowing your pee. So everybody enjoys pee. Okay. You swallow amniotic fluid, which is you pee and you swallow and you pee and you swallow. So Love that. Normalized oh, golden showers. Yeah. That's right. And it was like, oh, you had golden bath, girl. Golden that's bath. We we like, that's right. You were submerged in it and you were peeing and swallowing and peeing and swallowing. And you do that to just to train your system. Like you need to know how to swallow when you're born. There's nobody who can explain it to you. You need to be able to learn how to suck and swallow immediately. They're sucking their thumb in utero. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we can tell based on that amniotic fluid, if there's too much or too little, which part of the system is not doing its job, right? Mm-hmm. So at that point, you're also developing all kinds of protective mechanisms because you can't explain to a baby, hey, hun, when dust gets in your eye, just blink. Like it needs to happen before you have a chance to think, right? Mm-hmm. So you are just a kind of a ball of reflexes when you're born. The whole point in the gag is 
it's, it's one of the reflexes that doesn't go away. Like there are some that do go away, like your biting reflex and your sucking reflex. But gag reflex and other things like blink, they don't go away because you need them for your life. You're generally trying to keep foreign objects out of your system. It can be dust in your eye or it can be um, like a screw that a baby's trying to swallow that they shouldn't try to swallow. Your body should make you gag to get it up. So because often things that we, and you, it can happen if things are gross. Some people are like, I cannot yeah. stand bananas. It's too chewy and gross. Yeah. And your body will say- That's so funny. My partner hates bananas. <laughs> See, there we go, right? So the yeah. figurative and literal banana can text, cause problems, yeah, right? Totally. <laughs> exactly. And there are some people who just the thought of something gross makes them want to throw up. So a foreign yeah. object or something that might be dangerous for you, something that's bitter, bitter something that could kill you. Mm-hmm. Your body has does the opposite of a swallow. You have a re- reverse movement of those muscles instead of pulling things down, pull things up. You have a lot of viscous, uh, lube-like, it looks like lube or lube, um, uh, saliva that comes up from your neck. It acts like an organic loop. So actually gagging isn't yeah. all bad. During yeah, gagging creates that really great thick spit that's like so wonderful exactly. for... Your tongue wants to stick out and your thought palate moves up so things don't go into your nasal cavity when you throw up. Sometimes it's so violent that that does, right? Yeah. So all of those things happen in a second yeah. in the way that it should. So it's almost, mm-hmm. it's the opposite of a swallow. So that's why sometimes it's annoying. And sometimes we'll have acid reflux come up. So it's really uncomfortable. Yeah. And I mean, this seems like, an, I guess, an obvious question to answer to me, but like, of course, every body is different, but what are some components of why we see some people having a really sensitive reflex then? And one that's, a lot of people are like, I don't have a gag reflex. Is that actually like yeah. a disorder that they have because their body's not yeah. responsive? So 30% of people don't have a gag reflex. And the reason we know that is because there was a time where people would go around in hospitals and just gag people to see if they had a swallow. Somehow people thought if you can gag, you can swallow. It's totally a false notion. And if you couldn't gag, they go, oh, your swallow was broken. And then they would just treat you. So by virtue of learning about that, we ended up finding out some people have no gag response or hyposensitive, meaning they have they require a lot of stimulation for the gag to happen. And then there are a lot of people who are hypersensitive. Like some people, they're like, I can't even think about this food or I'm going to gag. Without throwing it. And yeah. sometimes, exactly. And sometimes you need a physical stimulus in the oral cavity to elicit it. And sometimes you just have to have a thought and you can gag. So it can be top down, which is like your central nervous system to your body, or it can be bottom up from your body to your brain. The point is they're always talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And so everyone is sensitive in different ways. And sometimes you heighten your gag reflex by thinking about it too much, mm-hmm. right? Sort of like if you're afraid of heights and you think about falling, it's probably not a good idea to think about it while you're climbing up a ladder because you're probably going to trip at the yeah. thought of it. And so, just uh, to say, highlight, same, same is true for all sexual functioning, right? If someone's worried they're not going to get an erection, It's going to make it worse. Yeah. Or if somebody feels pressure about having an orgasm, then they're like, well, thanks for that. Now I'm not going to come ever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so if we can't necessarily, I mean, can we work on shifting the gag reflex then? Because you said obviously we can't change. Of course you can. So sword swallowers have gag reflexes. It's not like they're all part of the 30%. It's just the, so I was going to say, maybe it's just the 30% that like, they're like, I know yeah, I can do this. Exactly. I didn't so choke on that dick way. so I could swallow a sword. <laughs> exactly. And so in the same way that you can suppress a cough or a sneeze because it's inappropriate, like you're talking to somebody and you're like, oh, hold on, hold on. And you have to turn to the side. You're like, oh, I'm trying not to sneeze because it would be inappropriate or it's loud or it's 
they're talking, I don't want to be rude. You can suppress a gag reflex. It just really depends on what technique you're using and why it's happening. Sometimes the stimulus is so great that your body's like, fuck you, we're gagging. I'm trying to keep you alive right now. But there are other circumstances where it's really mostly a central nervous, like the way you're thinking, and you can distract yourself. You can do things like clench your fist, or you can put something on um, whatever you're putting in your mouth that has a flavor uh, so that it feels more like food or like Mm -hmm. you're sucking on a lollipop as opposed to a foreign object. You can Mm -hmm. really trick your central nervous system into doing all kinds of things, and your gag can be contextual as opposed to a response that happens no matter what. Yeah. Okay. So for folks listening who are like, well, I guess before I get to like how to stop the gag, let's continue to normalize the gag a little bit. Right. So like you're saying, it's there. We need to recognize it as our body thinking it's doing its job to save us or keep us safe from some foreign body. Um, And I think a lot of it, it's, I don't know. I see this like really annoying kind of, um, diverse response where on one hand people feel really proud if they don't gag like it makes them you know like a better Mm -hmm. lover or something and then on the other side of things i think a lot of people like when people gag because they're like oh i'm so big or it's like this or they like watching somebody choke on their dick and so it's this sort Mm -hmm. of um interesting like duality of like i don't know like you shouldn't gag too much but you shouldn't not gag at all and and how do you how do you find this happy medium when we're also just talking about this like normal physiological response that our body needs to do well think of it like um a man having an orgasm right Mm -hmm. some men like to say oh i can laugh i can laugh and some men might say i don't have to laugh Uh, you guys decided that's the thing i should be able to that's what i'm trying to do it's just like any physiological response you put a sensory stimulus into the central nervous system in the black box and you try to figure out how it comes out and you try to figure out the relationship between the sensory information you're putting in and the motor response that's coming out Mm -hmm. and for each person normalizing your gag is what matters for you under your circumstance with this person you might want to do it and that person you might not want to do it it just really depends and having control over a system that is already in place and knowing how to work it is actually the more powerful thing instead of saying i should or i should not have it it is there we understand that and that's okay i mean there are people who probably don't have a gag reflex but fake the gag i mean is that yeah to be like oh it's so big i'm choking on it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. And easy to fake a gag, just like an orgasm if you're a woman, uh-huh. right? That's right. So those are things, about. Those are things that who's going to say, I didn't feel the reverse parasolthus in your throat. Like who's the, you know, who's measuring this right Nobody, now? Nobody. Yeah. Oh, I remember I was interviewing a, a friend of mine, past porn performer, Nina Hartley on something. And she was like, you can choke on any size, you know, penis, right? <laughs> Which is true, right? You can have, if you know that someone likes hearing the sounds and the things like you can fake this thing if it's something that feels nice for you and the person that you're with yeah and you know the thing to remember is that uh, um gagging isn't the only thing we can talk about other things but there's also this idea of deep throating which we can talk about um Mm -hmm. and the bruising that happens i mean there are all kinds of things besides gagging that can be an issue but i will say that i if I was approached by somebody who said, I use numbing cream a lot, this is where I would say we really want to be very careful there. And here's why. We do quite a number of studies on individuals, not thinking about the sexual space at all, where we have them swallow topical anesthesia for various reasons. If you have a procedure in the hospital, you swallow topical anesthesia. The issue is that your throat is uh, 
probably, you know, the part of your body where the first thing you do is protect your neck. If a loud noise happens, you protect your neck. Mm -hmm. Your neck is literally the conduit between your brain and your body. You're not living without it, right? Mm -hmm. So when that's the case, if you numb very a very small critical area of sensory information, it helps you to swallow. If something's stuck in your throat when you swallow or goes down the wrong way and you don't cough because you can't feel it anymore mm -hmm. because you've used so much numbing cream because now those sensory nerve endings that are sitting right there under that very thin skin yeah. have adapted. Now you have a problem. Think about what would happen if you could no longer blink if something came into your eye. You had you it, or you're always going to be too late. You're mm -hmm. never going to blink in time if it was all volitional. Um, and even worse is if you couldn't even feel like you had an eye full of dust walking around. People are like, why does your eye have so much sand? And you're like, what? I don't feel a thing. <laughs> And that's because your eye drops somehow numbing cream in it or something mm -hmm. and you just can't feel anything anymore. So yeah. I'd be very mindful that you could be changing the sensory capacity of your body in a very, very critical area. And if you can trick your body into using your brain to distract it, I would prefer that over using something that you can't control uh, in terms of long-term outcomes. Yeah. And like you're saying, there could also be injury, right? And I say the same things for folks who use numbing agents um, for wanting to last longer or for people who put it in their anus for butt stuff, um, you know, a lot of times then you're not actually tracking what your body is comfortable with, right? So for anal, we have this amazing, uh, we have, maybe you can tell me if I'm doing saying this right as more of a physiology person, but we have two sphincters. So like there's an external mm -hmm. and yeah. an internal sphincter. And mm -hmm. so the external one can be a little more, um, I, I would say like easier to manage because you're able to be a little more mindful and attentive as to like what's happening with that. But the internal one is an unconscious response that tightens when it's not, you know, it's, it's sort of like the ultimate gatekeeper to anal. It's deciding if it's relaxed enough or comfortable enough to do it. But a lot of people use these numbing creams because they don't want it to be painful and it shouldn't be painful. Right. So if you're pushing through the pain and just numbing it, a, you don't know what's actually going on. You could injure yourself and then you can't actually like find the solutions to teach yourself to figure out like, how can I actually enjoy this? You're just kind of trying to like dissociate your nervous system. That's right. And the same thing happens in the neck. Just be able, just right. There's a yeah. sphincter called the upper esophageal sphincter that goes between your throat and your esophagus. It's always closed. It only opens when it feels that food is coming toward it. And then it opens just in time for the food and closes immediately after. When you burp that noise you make, it's the air vibrating against that sphincter as it escapes Whoa. from your esophagus into your throat. It's meant to be closed. So it keeps like all the stomach content. <laughs> exactly. Or yeah, it's exactly like a fart. That's why I tell my students <laughs> as well. Uh, it keeps stomach contents out of your throat and it keeps air out of your esophagus. If you confuse these parts of your body that rely on sensory information in your mouth and neck where they can't feel things coming and they don't respond, now you have an issue with all the motor responses that are relying on that sensory information. Mm. Hey, slutty scholars. Remember, the more you support the advertisers, the more you support the podcast. And I like to advertise things that I hope will help you find more pleasure in your life. This episode is sponsored by Back to the Body. Back to the Body is a sexual wellness retreat for women. Do y'all remember my episode with Pamela Madsen? Well, if you haven't listened yet, we talk about my awesome experience at one of her retreats. Honestly, my week at the Back to the Body retreat was pleasurable, fun, connected. It was one of the best gifts I have given myself in a long time and so worth it. Pamela and her team at Back to the Body use their expertise to guide you through a transformative whole body healing journey that's individually tailored to fit your specific needs. To find yourself, just bring your body. 
The new Back to the Body Sexual Wellness Quiz for Women is a chance to learn what your unique obstacles are to sexual wellness. Learn what those are by taking Back to the Body Sexual Wellness Quiz for Women. Visit backtothebody.org to take the quiz. Unlock your radical path to holistic wellness. That's Back to the Body, B-A-C-K-T-O-T-H-E-B-O-D-Y, backtothebody.org. And you can take the free sexual wellness quiz for women now. The link is in the episode's description. Plus, I left y'all a little special discount code for their retreats. Let's say like I am wanting to work on my gag reflex, either making it hopefully if it needs to be more sensitive or making it less sensitive for something like this. I'm imagining myself going to a doctor and being like, hey, I really want to be able to like deep throat a little bit more. Can you help me with this? Like you said, I imagine there's not a lot of swallowologists out there who are going to be able to talk about that topic. Yeah, I'm pretty much the only one. And, you know, they actually try to kick me out of the field for talking about it with Reba a couple of years ago on Instagram. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Tried, Tell me more. That's yeah. everything my podcast is about. Yeah. So they tried to strip me of my life support. So I, uh, wow. I, well, essentially what happened was uh, this, as I said before, this topic was what she was like, Hey, what do I tell my clients? So, and she was like, let's do a live. And I was like, this is excellent. You know, obviously I was already, I left academia. I, wasn't doing anything there. I kept my license. Just I, I wasn't practicing clinically. I'd been paying it for eight for it for like eight years. I hadn't used it, but you know, you never know. And I'm just a private citizen talking to my best friend on IG, where we're a swallowologist and sexologists are talking. But because I'm so prominent, uh, it doesn't hurt that I'm the only black swall- swallowing scientist on the planet. Um, that everything wow, I do the is only issue, right. Wow, the only. Yeah. So for that reason, because I made such, um, you know, I was so prominent in a successful way that making the switch really made people think, oh, I had so much respect for her. She has obtained millions of dollars of grants. And now she's talking about that. Like I failed them somehow. So what they did, because they were so worried about my following, thinking that this is what we can do now, that they actually sent it to the ethics committee at the American Speech Language Hearing Association. That is the governing body that determines whether someone can practice clinically. And I got a letter from them saying that you have to explain yourself in 45 days about why you were talking about uh, sex on IG. And so I, my thought yeah. was this, uh, fuck you. I owe you not one, one second of my time. I am doing nothing. I am not responding. I, you deserve no explanation for me. So I sent it to a few friends of mine, some colleagues who sort of just are friends. And they're like, oh, my God, you have to do something. I'm like, I will do nothing. <laughs> they don't deserve any of my time. So what they did is they made a whole campaign. And um, there was letters, letter writing. And there was thousands of people signing a petition. And there were all these IG lives. And people just blowing up the world on my behalf. Because they're like, if they could do this to you, they could do this to anybody. Also, they shouldn't be doing this. Mm-hmm. So then what happened was um, the people who submitted the letter of complaints against me. One of them, by the way, was on my dissertation committee at the NIH uh, 20 You're years kidding. ago. Well, wow. No, not kidding. Uh, they started getting death threats. Uh, people started threatening their jobs. And then they w- one person Whoa. withdrew the claim. And then within seven days, it was all done. And then the governing body, ASHA, American, uh, American uh, Speech Hearing Association, they contacted me and said, um, your claim is dropped. Wow. So 
what's really interesting is they said the thing, the reason they were complaining is one, I called myself a swallowologist. I'm like, I learned that at a, at, at a, at a scientific meeting when I was a brand new student at, at 2000, in 2006. This is something that all speech pathologists call themselves as a joke among ourselves. It was never something that I started. And also in their own publication, they use that term when referring to some white women. And also a lot of white, our field is 90% white female. It's our most female dominated field in the United States. And it's the third whitest. But white women have been writing books about, as speech pathologists, helping people to figure out how to go down on other people. They're on Amazon. But now you hear that I have a live as a private citizen and I'm the one that you're going to strip the life in. So then it became a misogynoir issue, like misogyny among black women. Yeah. And so um, what we ended up talking about was how crazy it was that just last week, a week before, I was on Oprah Winfrey Network as a swallowologist on a show called Love and Marriage D.C., explaining and helping a couple deal with their oral sex related issues and this is a wow. year after they did this whole claim now i didn't know i'd ever be on tv like when they contacted congratulations them, you know, but there you go it's like you blow these things up and they actually you can't handle it and there's not i didn't do anything wrong but they felt like i shouldn't be doing it for their own reasons related to guilt and shame wanting to shut down my freedom and it was unsuccessful because now oprah loves it that's great. <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's beyond messed up on so many levels, right? And you think about this idea that if someone is part of a, a marginalized population, that they're more afraid of like being who they are or standing up for things because of fear of, of losing that position. What do you think helped you like not be afraid of losing your license and just being like, fuck you, this is not okay? Well, part of the thing is that I've always had a pretty strong sense of self. And a big part of that is that I have immigrant parents that are Jamaican. They moved to Toronto. I was raised in Toronto and then I moved to the United States. So I'm kind of a double immigrant. Mm-hmm. I kind of decided at an early age that I was always going to be different in some way. And you either like me for who I am or you didn't like me for who I am. If you don't like me for who I am, I'd rather that than you like me for who I'm not, that I'm faking yeah. to be. So it just never worked for me. So I kind of also our field is 3% black. So I was already used to being sort of a bit of an outsider. Mm-hmm. And I was never defined by this by this field. I already knew that if I chose speech pathology or any other field, I'd be excellent at it. They didn't make me. I helped to make them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not a factor of, oh, I, I'm nothing without this degree. Are you kidding me? I'm a scrappy Jamaican. I mean, like, what are you talking about? You can't, yeah. you don't get to control me. At yeah. the end of the day, who am I if these people get to decide my work? Mm-hmm. So with that always being my sense, uh, my sensibility, um, in the face of me understanding how um, institutions brainwash people yeah. into them thinking that they matter, and the second you leave your leave your job, they replace you in an instant like you were never there, then you realize, wow, I got to find my own value and self-worth in this world because these people, they don't really care about me. Buildings are, you know, institutions are buildings filled with people, and whoever yeah. those people are at the time defines it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the gatekeeping is is unreal. I mean, medicine in general, obviously, and our entire system isn't kind to black women. And why do you think swallowing as a profession is so white? Like, is this just well, part the of the regular that, systemic or like, what is it about that that makes it even it's more? A, it's an ex- yeah, no, great question. It's an extension of it. So speech pathology is already so white, right? And mm-hmm. speech pathologists, uh, started out in the educational space. You think about somebody helping a, a child say F better 
or mm. articulate sounds or deal with language. And then it moved on to the medical space, like in the 70s or so, when uh, a lot of soldiers were coming back from Vietnam and they had brain injuries and all these other things. So yeah. now you have medical FLPs, and that was even more of a gatekeeping thing, much mm -hmm. easier to get into school. So anything that people think is more prestigious, then they want to keep Black people out because mm -hmm. obviously it can be prestigious if Black people are there and then mm -hmm. do the same thing to women, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, medical SLP is even harder to get into. So, and then within medical SLP, the swallowing world is kind of this little snobby elite area, which has always been the case. You know, uh, they eat their young kind of thing. Uh, so the reason I got in is because I had amazing pedigree and I knew how to show how brilliant I am with mm -hmm. unapologetically, like you either like me or you don't, but you know, I know what the fuck I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you you have to become undeniably good, like so good that if they deny you, it's a crime. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's a lot of pressure. This, it is a lot of pressure, but I'm fitter than they are. So you see, if we all need to run a hundred miles to get to the the finish line, but I did it with five pound weights, I'm fitter than you at the end. So mm -hmm. that's how I see it. And I don't expect anything from people who've always been this way. They've been this way for 400 years. Why are they going to stop for me? Mm. What, why? Why? Don't be surprised by people who display the same energy over and over again. You waste time being reactive when you could have been proactive. Mm -hmm. So I've just learned to be proactive. I expect that you will do this. It sucks that you don't get to know me in this amazing light. It mm. sucks that you walk around with so much hatred for people. But guess who wins? I do because I have to figure out you. And I have to figure out me. And when I win, I win way more and way more than, than you could ever win because you are so entitled. You yeah. think the world belongs to you. And the privilege, right? I mean, yeah. the other part of this that you're talking about, and even as you were, as I was hearing you describe it, when you were first doing this IG live, like I heard you describing it as like, well, this is something I'm doing as a lay, you know, almost like a lay person in my pri the privacy, not private, obviously it's Instagram, but like with a friend. Um, and it's messed up because I'm like, why is it that we have to preface it by saying that? And why can't it be under your license? Right? Like there are so many people out there and doctors that I've heard about and so many clients of mine that have worked with people who have had sexual dysfunction things and their doctors just didn't tell them that it could be the result of something either because they didn't know they didn't have that training or they felt uncomfortable talking about sex. And so it saddens me, though I'm not surprised, to hear that you have to be like, well, this is something I was doing with a friend as opposed to like, yeah, I'm fucking doing this as a licensed doctoral professional because it's important to talk about sex with our clients who come in for swallowing disorders. Yeah, no, you're right. So there's two reasons. The first thing is the obvious thing, which is judgment of others is a reflection of shame in yourself. And so we know that that's what's happening. So that's why yeah. the attacking happened. But mm -hmm. the, it is under our license. And the reason is because the World Health Organization has a number of areas which are considered activities of daily living, everywhere from bathing yourself, feeding yourself, moving around to get to your car, getting getting to work, you know, occupational things. Yeah. And sex and sexuality is under that. PTs, physical therapists and OTs, occupational therapists do this all the time. Speech therapists, unfortunately, and I think it has more to do with the culture around speech pathology, which is a lot of middle class, 35 year old white women who don't who want to fit in with the boys and don't want anything to make it look like they're they're outside the box they want to be real professionals right and that and whole sex, idea liking and, sex certainly can't make us professional absolutely well it makes it means that you're not credible it means that you can't have a brain you know it means that you you got here because of your your vagina you didn't get here because of your brain we don't want in fact if you go to these conferences anyone who looks politely sexual 
but like has a dress that's too tight then the women are in the corner the ladies who lunch are like oh my god how dare she so mm -hmm. with all of that it's the culture of the field it means that we don't even acknowledge that this is an ABL that we can bill for yeah i mean I can't believe that it's, I mean, I can believe that it's listed on there as like an everyday activity, but how many doctors are actually trained to talk about it like an everyday activity? Yeah, well, very few actually have sexual training um, yeah. unless they're in an area where it's directly related. So obviously OBGYNs are going to have way more than dermatologists might, right? You know um, what though? They so don't. I but I mean, look, I, I love, I think OBGYNs do a, an important, obviously, service and most of the OBGYNs that my clients have gone to do not have training about pleasure. They do not have training about um, pain. Um, they don't have a lot of this specialized training. So generally, I only refer to people who are sexual medicine specialists when it has anything to do with like not the sort of basic um, obstetrics, gynecological functioning um, because they yeah, just that makes don't sense. know. Yeah, no, that makes sense because if you ask ask a speech pathologist or a swallowologist about the pleasure of eating, they can't tell you anything. They can just tell you when things go down the mm. wrong way. It's all about problems. It's sort of like in sexual health, you have people who focus more on uh, disease and infection. You have others who focus on pleasure. And pleasure is not necessarily the first most prominent one. It's mostly um, STIs and STDs. Same with us. It's like, what about you? If you aspirate, meaning food when you swallow goes in your trachea instead of your esophagus, they're obsessed with that. But they're so obsessed with that that they forget about the fact that People might aspirate and cough and still want to eat what they want to eat because the pleasure of eating food supersedes all of the other things. And yeah. it's, I actually drew a beautiful um, uh, connection between in my head between the sexology summit learning that I did as an outsider, if you will, and a swallowology. What happens in biology is it biology tricks us with pleasure to get to the bodily function we actually need. We are tricked by the pleasure of sex and sexuality and pleasure in order to have uh, any proliferation of our species. Who the heck would deal with this if it felt like shit? <laughs> we would die. The species' jobs are to not die out. They do everything to not die out. And so as a result, we eat based on things that are beautiful colors or smells or tastes, and we end up getting the nutrition we need. We don't even understand how nutrition worked until we would have been around for billions of years by that time, right? Mm. We didn't need to know how that we needed vitamin D or vitamin or protein. or Nobody was worried about protein. Did you get enough protein or B12 back then? You just ate whatever you could get, whatever tasted good in your body, you figured it out. Same thing with having a baby, right? Mm. And so because that's the case, if you lead with pleasure and understand where the body's doing things differently, that's the way your body's already doing it. But when you lead with a medical gaze, which is we're going to fix your body and fuck pleasure, then people never follow through with your suggestions because you're yeah. looking at them as a thing that needs to be fixed as opposed to a human that wants pleasure. I love, love that you said that because that's something I try to teach my clients is a lot of people think like, well, I can't have pleasure until I fix or heal myself, right? As opposed to pleasure being a human right or pleasure being a tool and a resource for healing. And so the way you said it just now was such a like, beautiful alternative narrative too, to be like, not just to say like, this is a trick, but why else would you want to continue this tough journey if we can't find moments of pleasure? Yeah. I, I do know, speaking of like pleasure with, with that and the throat, I do know some people who have expressed that they feel 
an orgasmic response from like throat stimulation. Um, what is throat that gasm, about? Yeah. yeah. What is a throat gasm? So it's basically the vagus nerve. Um, the vagus nerve, so your body has 12 cranial nerves. And these are nerves that come from your uh, brain as opposed to your spinal cord. And they extend mostly into your face and into your neck. And then you have your spinal nerve that go all the way down to your um, coccyx, right? Um, but if you focus on the cranial nerve, the, tw- uh, the vagus is a 10th cranial nerve. And it's, it's, it's called vagus, not because, you know, the city, but you can go <laughs> yeah, there V-A-G-U-S. too. Yeah, it, it means... <laughs> Yeah, it means wandering because it wanders all the way down to your genital region, especially in women, right? Mm-hmm. And so because it deals with so many of your visceral organs, but also deals with your voice mm-hmm. and your swallow and um, some um, aspects of um, higher centers in your throat, it is involved in volitional and um, reflective uh, spontaneous behaviors in your body. Yeah. That nerve, because it stimulates areas in your genital, the source of that nerve where it originally extends from the central nervous system is the brainstem. So similar to, I'm going to say, so you guys call it ice cream headache or, uh, brain freeze. Ice, is that what you got? Brain, brain freeze. freeze. You, you know what? I don't know. I, I thought it was like, I get the Canadian American thing. Confused. Ice cream headache. Ice cream headache. <laughs> and I was so confused, but I always called it brain freeze. I was like, is this a Southern thing like pop and soda? Okay. I've never so heard someone call actually, it an ice cream headache, but I guess that's like, that's what they were calling valid. it. Yeah. So the medical term, term it's phenopalatine ganglioneuralgia. And what that means oh, is... Oh, well, we should all nerve, start saying that. That's what she said. I mean, isn't it so much more fun than the ice cream <laughs> headache? That, what, what happens with that is the food is in your mouth, but you feel it in your head. And that's what we call referred sensation. Yeah. So the same thing happens with the vagus nerve. The referred sensation from the vagus nerve that extends to your throat can also go down to your genital region. region. Yeah. So you're stimulating that nerve at the level of your throat, even though you might feel like it's an orgasm. I think with the the vagus nerve too, I, I've talked a lot about like polyvagal theory um, on the podcast. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Some people are supportive of that theory or not. What what are your thoughts on on? Are you familiar with polyvagal? About it. I might um, be, but maybe we call it something else. I'm not yeah, sure. it's uh, was a theory. I think the first person to talk about it was Stephen Porges, um, and it talks about like sort of the different. Um, the different parts of the vagus nerve essentially and like if and when and how we um access those in terms of regulating our nervous system with like trauma healing uh, yeah 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 for sure for sure I've, i i i don't i didn't recognize that term but absolutely we hold so much that i mean the vagus nerve is so interesting like your heart races when you have to take a shit because mm-hmm. you know it's sort of it's not that your heart you're ner- nervous time about to do it. something it's because <laughs> It's because that the vagus nerve is being stimulated in a different area and it's right. expressed in a different spot than the place yeah. where the source of the issue is, right? Yeah. So it's no surprise to me that that's the case. But we do know what's beautiful about it is that there are people, women who have had spinal nerve injuries, which means uh, spinal cord injuries, which means that they can't feel anything below their, you know, midsection. But if but their vagus nerve is intact. Exactly. They can access orgasms at the level of their throat. So that's why some people, depending on how they're wired, they actually mm-hmm. experience orgasm. They have a sort of this lust for something in their throat because they happen to be able to access the nerve at that area. Mm-hmm. Think of it as some people who can move their ears and some people who can't move their ears. We're yeah. all wired similarly, but differently. And our capacity to access pleasure in different areas also varies. Mm, so physiologically, what is the upside of being vocal 
during sex or before, because as we're talking about the vagus nerve, there's a concept known as like vagal toning. Um, but a lot of people might, might call it other things, but sort of encouraging people to access like humming and sounds and voo and, mm, you know, to like, um, help shift their nervous system. So in that and gagging same, and swallowing. Yeah. So in that same vein, like where does being vocal during pleasure fit into like a necessary physical thing that actually helps us have more pleasure. Right. So in general, if you're going to summate a nerve, uh, then you're going to get more information going into and out of the central nervous system. Mm -hmm. As long as it's not distracting, like where you're like suddenly trying to like spin plates on your head with a, and it just, it's not part of the natural process, then it makes a lot of sense that if you are accessing that vagus nerve, in mm-hmm. those ways, it can be helpful. Of course, the vagus nerve is not the only thing that brings pleasure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and I'm I'm not going to say I'm an expert on all the nerves in that area, but the vagus nerve is a cranial nerve. There have to be some spinal nerves, obviously, that lead to the actual orgasm. Orgasm. So the orgasm is a rhythmic, patterned um, response of pleasurable uh, muscle spasm. That the vagus nerve isn't actually sending that motor response out. It's actually at the level of the spinal cord that that's happening. Mm-hmm. But we're all, it's, the central nervous system is the brain and spinal cord. So they're interacting with each other. So yeah. it may be the case that sensory information going into the vagu- vagus nerve, uh, into the brain stem helps with an output at the level of the spinal cord, right? Because we know that what we see in porn gets us excited. And those cranial nerves mm-hmm. for your eyes aren't related to your spine, but your central, but your brain is so smart that it's taking all that information and making sense of it and taking mm-hmm. those mirror neurons. Mirror neurons are the ones that when you see something, your body actually wants you to be a part of it. If you see somebody running, some of your running muscles might actually be sort of activated, even though you're not doing it. If you see somebody eating, then you start to salivate, you know, those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Yeah. So that's why porn works because you see somebody having sex and now, you know, your genitals are excited. Yeah. So I believe that it's really about the central nervous system and if for you it helps to bring more sensory information into it Mm -hmm. and it translates to a uh genitalia response uh to have an orgasm that's beautiful yeah like you said i think it just expands this pleasure potential i've found that like not in like a faking way of like (laughs) like i need to have like you know an actual sound that my body wants to make or making sure i'm still breathing and i think without those like those sounds and without the breath we are limiting the, the pleasure potential that we have, you know, because we're kind of holding it, we're holding it in. Yeah, and your your larynx is fully innervated by the vagus for both movement and sensation. Mm. So your larynx is a hot spot for the vagus nerve. There are others that have a mix of vagus and other, but the larynx specifically is a hot spot. So moaning and those kinds of behaviors uh, likely send a lot more sensory information up. Yeah, I know people who have had orgasms from breath work, so that makes sense. (laughs) Wow. Okay, there's like so many more questions I can ask you, but I know we have to start wrapping up Um, before we do. And I know you're not anyone's doctors or medical person here, but is there any tips for folks who kind of just going back to the deep throat or swallowing who are like, I want to get a little less sensitized on that without harming my, you know, automatic nervous system response. What are some like first steps someone can take to, to start to practice that a little bit, like the the sword swallowing, the cock swallowing practice? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the thing is that you have to make sense of when it's a problem. So some people only have a problem when the penis goes too far back. 
And now it becomes literally a choking hazard because also remember that just behind your tongue and below is a place where your airway is just one tooth. Once you get above your tongue, then you have a air that can go through your nose or your mouth. Now it's bifurcated. So you have two areas. You can plug your nose and breathe, or you can plug your mouth and breathe. But below your tongue, it's just one tube, which is why this idea of deep throating, where people think it's actually going down in there. I'm like, okay, just as long as you know you're not breathing the whole time. Um, when people want to get to that level, uh, then we're really talking about whether or not they can tolerate it. If your body is saying, I'm associating this behavior with trauma, then you have to think about whether or not you really want that in your central nervous system. And yeah. sometimes some bodies can't handle it, just like people with vaginismus. They also have issues with swallowing pills because their body is saying, look, we don't want, more. they interpret a lot of things incoming as uh, a reason to have a more exacerbated protection system. Know your body. I'd say the very, very first thing is understand the circumstances under which it happens and whether or not you think that you can sideswipe this potential, mm -hmm. this traumatic thing that you could be creating, mm -hmm. or whether or not you want to work through it or say, I'm going to respect what my body doesn't want. Yes. And say, that's okay. Let's find another way to do it. Now, if you're somebody who yeah. says, it's really not that bad, it's just annoying, then, mm -hmm. like I said, find out which distractions work for you. Maybe it's focusing on a different part of your body. Maybe it's really imagining that you're doing this without any problem. Maybe mm. it's tricking your brain to believe by putting something that's tasty on what you're um, interacting with to think that this is an edible item. Yeah. Uh, those are things that yeah, I would explore uh, definitely. For me, though, the anxiety also goes down when I actually listen to my body. Right. And so if I'm not listening and I'm not respecting what it's asking for, or if I have a partner who's trying to push my head down, but that's not like a kink that we've explored prior, I'm going to start choking more because then I don't feel safe and I don't feel like I can expand that. Right. Versus if I slow right. down and I really respect my process and I'm like being trauma aware and trauma supportive of myself. I, me personally, I'm going to feel more at ease to do a little more and be like, okay, I know I can get out of that. And oh, okay, that's too much, but like I can push it a right. little more. Right. When you feel, when you feel safer to know that you're going to listen to your body versus, oh, I'm just doing this because my partner wants me to be able to do it more, or I'm supposed to, or this is how it's supposed to be. Let's just white knuckle and push through it. And, and, um, I know we talked about this with the vagus nerve too, but there is a lot of fascia that connects the mouth and the jaw to the pelvis. So there is such an overlap that if you're struggling with something with the mouth and the jaw, there may be other stuff you're holding in your pelvis. It's, it's connected. Oh, a hundred percent. And, um, given that it's connected also think listen to your body in terms of times of day where you feel more queasy maybe not mm -hmm. right after a meal right mm -hmm. maybe some people talk about in the morning they're they the, the idea of the toothbrush and, and white on sort of scrubbing their tongue is a no right mm. if you know that you're gonna have the same sort of morning sickness sense about, about yourself even though you're not pregnant then maybe that's not the time to do it so maybe your body has its defenses down is more receptive at a certain time of day relative to food etc that you shouldn't respect and then see how you can extrapolate that slowly but surely into other times. I love how trauma-informed you are about this because we're taught so young that we have to do it a certain way and to not give ourselves permission to like sensually explore when things actually feel more comfortable. It's like, oh, well, morning and evening, you're supposed to brush your teeth. That's just the time. And to not even question it. And I just hope and wish that, and I know there are some fields shifting into this, but that more doctors and practitioners become as trauma-informed and sex-informed as you are. Yeah, 
Well, you know, thank you for saying that. Uh, I will give credit to people who I've listened to over the years. And a lot of them were patients with swallowing disorders who had to train me on the fact that sometimes my clinical advice doesn't work for them. And here's why. A good Mm -hmm. example is what people don't know is you swallow a liter of saliva a day. You swallow in one year 525,600 times every minute, all night long. And if you have a swallowing problem where you can't even swallow your own saliva, like you're waking up every hour, spitting in a cup to just get it all out. Mm. That's how much of our system is doing stuff in the background to keep us going so we can do things like eat and sleep and think, right? Mm -hmm. And so it didn't even occur to me to ask that question. Here I am giving you all the statistics and how many times you're swallowing. And I tell him, when you wake up in the morning, he's like, I'm exhausted when I wake up. I'm like, why? He goes, I have to wake up and spit all night. I'm like, holy crap. And it was at that moment, I was like, I need to ask, I need to tell them, I need to say to my patients. Nothing about us without us. Exactly. What questions can I answer? I'm not there to deliver news. I'm here to have an interaction with you where you inform me as well. And if you open that up, then you can earn more. Well, maybe that's what I'll thank you for. And for the folks who felt able to speak up because it's so hard to speak up in the power dynamic of talking to a doctor, especially when in those times you do. And the doctor is just like, are you the doctor? Yeah. I've had people say that like the client is the best expert of their body. You know, you're there to facilitate with your knowledge, but if they're telling you how something's going, like believe them, listen to them. And so by allowing this or opening up this collaborative dialogue That to me is the most healing thing. Not that like, you know, all the stuff. So even if you're listening and you're a medical practitioner, yes, get some additional trainings in these things. And even if you don't know all the stuff, just opening the door to permission for collaboration, to me, that's the key. Yeah. Permission to collaborate is exactly what it is, that they are supposed to open the door for you because really the power dynamic is in the opposite way, sort of like a police officer, you know, except they're in charge of your body in in ways that you're not expecting. That's right. Do you want more pleasure in your life? This episode is sponsored by our friends at Back to the Body. Are you curious about arousal, struggling with your sexual self-image or genital self-esteem? Are you looking for a sisterhood where you can talk about all this? If you are ready to prioritize your sexual wellness, check out Back to the Body. Our sponsor, Back to the Body, is a sexual wellness retreat for women. Back to the Body hosts immersive week-long retreats that transport women to nurturing, non-judgmental environments. The new Back to the Body sexual wellness quiz for women is a chance to learn what your unique obstacles are to sexual wellness, like what do you want, what's holding you back, and how you can overcome those barriers. You will leave knowing the next best steps and what services are out there to support you. Learn what your unique obstacles are to sexual wellness today by taking Back to the Body's sexual wellness quiz for women. Visit backtothebody.org to take the quiz. Unlock your radical path to holistic wellness. That's Back to the Body, B-A-C-K-T-O. T-H-E-B-O-D-Y, backtothebody.org, and you can take the free sexual wellness quiz for women now. The link is in the episode's description, plus there's a special discount code there for their retreats. Now to the episode. Oh, Inessa, thank you so much. You are a wealth of knowledge, and I'm, I'm really grateful for what you're doing, and I'm, I'm so glad that you are someone at this intersection um, and paving the way with that. Um, how can folks get in touch, um, hire you, follow what you're doing, bring you on to more Oprah shows? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my first name and last name, Ianetha Humbert, consulting.com is where you can book time with me. But my first name, last name, Ianetha Humbert um, is my IG handle. 
or Ian at the is where I uh, have a lot of my uh, swallowing stuff. So if you know how to spell my first and last name, you type that in. The first thing you're going to hear, like all the swallowology stuff and all my contacts. So if you know my name, you can find me. Thank you. And that will be in the show notes, folks. Um, if you want to follow what I'm doing, I'm on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars. Uh, you can listen anywhere you get your podcasts or at slutsandscholars.com. Please don't forget to rate and review and check out those advertiser discounts. Ianessa, thank you so much. Sluts and Scholars is a podcast produced by Sluts and Scholars Media, LLC. It is a shame-free educational podcast made for your entertainment and informational desires only. The podcast, any opinions we share, and any resources, including social media and emails from us, are not therapy, medical care, or professional advice, and do not create a patient-client relationship. None of the information, opinions, suggestions, resources, or exercises mentioned in this podcast should be used without clearance from your healthcare provider. All opinions, information, and ideas expressed by the guests are solely their own. If you need emergency mental health or medical help, please call 911 or 988 or go to your nearest emergency center. We hope you enjoy the show.